0: The text for our sermon this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. Hebrews 11, 23 through 29. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, Than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. Whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. At this time, I think to call our kids forward for their children's sermon. Well, the verses that we just read explain a couple of stories about Moses. See, all the stories of the Bible are about God's grace for his people. And grace means God's special love that he has for his children. And in these stories about Moses, we see God's grace working to save his people. Now, just before Moses was born, the evil king of Egypt ordered that all the Hebrew baby boys were to be killed, and he said that they were to be drowned in the river as soon as they were born. You know, this is often how God works. You see, God wants us to understand that we have no power and no ability to save ourselves, so he often places his people in very, very dark and scary situations so that they realize that their help is from the Lord. So right at the point that all hope seems lost and all the baby boys of the Hebrews would be killed, little Moses is born. His mom places him in a little basket and then she puts the basket in the tall grass near the riverside and she sent Moses' big sister to hide and to keep an eye on the baby. The next morning the princess of Egypt came down to wash and she found the baby and she felt sorry for him and decided to raise him as her own son. Well, Moses' sister came out and asked the princess if she wanted her to find a babysitter. And she said, yes. And do you know who the sister got? She got Moses' mom. So Moses was nursed and cared for by his very own mother while the princess of Egypt adopted him as her son. Now, the Bible tells us this story because it's important that we understand that even when God uses his enemies for our benefit, they are not our friends. Moses was saved by the evil kingdom of Egypt, the very kingdom that ordered the death of all of God's little baby Hebrew boys. As Moses grew up, he had to accept the fact That these Egyptians did not love and serve God. And if he continued to live among them, he would become evil just like they were. So Moses made a very difficult decision. He turned his back on Egypt and sided with the Hebrews. This meant that he was willing to be hated and treated like a slave. He was laughed at and mocked because he loved the Lord and his church more than all of the riches of Egypt. And our verses are teaching us that this is what true faith always does. True faith sees the invisible reality of heaven and understands that all the treasures of the world will only be a heavy chain that will drag us down to hell if we prefer them to Jesus. The verses tell us that Moses preferred, quote, the reproach of Christ over all of the wealth of Egypt. That means Moses was content to be thought of as a fool by the world. He was content to be misunderstood and abused for Jesus because he knew about the reward of heaven and he believed that Jesus is worth more than anything that the world can give. Do you know Jesus said, for what profit will it be to a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? No amount of wealth can be compared to the value of your soul. And Moses understood that Jesus is the greatest treasure there is. And we'll pray, and then you can return to your seats. O oh, Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, And thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we hearing thy word may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to focus largely on verses 24 through 27. And really that phrase that I want to particularly focus on is the phrase, the reproach of Christ. Now we've noted that faith is passive in receiving the gifts of God, but active in living according to what it has received. And in Moses' faith, we see three important things. We see, number one, he chose communion with Christ. Number two, he chose communion of the saints. And number three, he chose Christ over life all the (coughs) excuse me all the amazing things recorded in this chapter are said to be by faith philippians 129 ephesians 2 8 tell us that faith is the gift of god so these men are not models for us by any virtue they possessed in themselves i mean if i told you to read the biblical accounts of most of these men's lives and see if you could find something morally questionable I'm pretty sure you could do it in under 10 minutes. These men's lives and exploits are not recorded for us in order to point us to themselves and to their greatness. What their lives point to is the greatness of God's grace in condescending to use such men. At the end of the day, all the glory is God's. Whatever purpose their lives served, whatever they accomplished, it was solely due to the grace of God who worked faith in their hearts by the preaching of the gospel. Now, what can we say about Moses' faith? Our text tells us that his faith brought him to a point of crisis. And this is always true of faith. One cannot live at odds with one's true principles. True faith will always force a decision. Our title is The Reproach of Christ, and we're going to look at exactly what this means. First, it entails, as we see in Moses' life, choosing communion with Christ. The faith we're talking about here is saving faith. What's so striking about Moses' faith is where he was at the time. Moses was living in the Egyptian royal court, a place of rank idolatry and sensuality. Here's a pitch for the benefits of catechizing our children. Moses was the adopted son of the Egyptian princess, but he had been cared for by his own mother. You may recall how the princess found the baby in the basket, floating by the riverside. Moses' big sister Miriam was conveniently standing there and volunteered to find the baby a wet nurse. And who did she get but Jochebed, Moses' very own mother. She you be sure that Moses was brought up on his mother's knee learning the doctrines of the word of God. As Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. When the Egyptian army drowns in the Red Sea, Moses sings, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. God always honors his covenant. And because Moses' parents provided Moses, as they were able, with a covenant upbringing, this shielded Moses against the snares of luxury and sensuality when he was older. Moses made a choice. He chose communion with Christ. He valued adoption as the son of God over adoption as the son of the princess. And Moses did this in the last place you would expect Right there in the royal court, enjoying all the glitz and glamour of royal life in the midst of a thoroughly idolatrous court, Moses stood on the Lord's side. I have to say that this is quite a rebuke to many people who live in a quiet community surrounded by churchgoers, and with all that on their side, they can't make much of a stand for Christ and the doctrines of Scripture. Now, Moses' choice was not made in the heat of passion or the impulsive fire of youth. Scripture says Moses was a full 40 years old. This was a mature decision. He was old enough to understand what this decision would entail. But he was also old enough that his decision required some effort to break from his old ways and old friends. Generally speaking, men are set in their ways by the time they're 40 And this is when Moses makes his clean break with Egypt. So we know that this was not a spur-of-the-moment decision. Choosing the reproach of Christ meant breaking with Egypt as his people. Choosing the reproach of Christ meant breaking with Egypt's clout. And the Holy Spirit, in the various accounts that it gives us of Moses' childhood in Acts chapter 7 and in Exodus leads us to believe that Moses' parents understood that there was something special about this child. And when apparently random circumstances put Moses into Pharaoh's own household, Moses seemed destined for greatness. In choosing the reproach of Christ, Moses gave up an eminent position and brilliant prospects. He was the adopted son of a king's daughter, but he gave that up. All things considered, Moses could have actually been a potential heir to the throne. Many people would think, you know, Moses, maybe this is God's plan. You know, you can do more for your people as a nobleman than as a nobody. So you can imagine how foolish Moses must have appeared when he turned his back on Egypt. And not only that, can you imagine the accusations of ingratitude? This woman took you in and raised you as your own and you disown her? But God gives Moses a brief taste of failure when he tries to use his royal clout. Moses and others believe that his position in the royal family may have been God's provision so that he could deliver them from Egypt. And in Acts chapter seven, we do find that this idea was floating around. So here's what I mean. One day, Moses sees an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew. So he comes to the Hebrew's rescue and ends up killing the Egyptian. Now, the word that the Bible uses for kill is one that always implies justifiable killing. So this was no murder. And Stephen tells us that Moses thought that his Hebrew brethren would understand by this that God had sent him to deliver them. But that's not what happened. The next day, Moses sees two Hebrews fighting, and when he tries to intervene and reason with them that their brothers One of them says to him, yeah, what are you going to do about it? you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So Moses leaves Egypt. And many people would say, look, just because the place is sinful, that doesn't mean you have to go along with it, right? I mean, can't you live here and use the benefits to the advantage of your people without indulging in sin for a season? Choosing the reproach of Christ meant severing all ties with the world's system not relying on the world for anything. And this is clearly the work of saving faith. Nothing less than true saving faith could cause a man to turn away from wealth and power and choose suffering and shame. Do you remember how Abraham refused to take even a shoelace from the king of Sodom? Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. This is the same faith. Moses refuses To give Egypt the opportunity of saying that Moses was indebted to them. Choosing the reproach of Christ meant turning away from the riches of Egypt. Moses clearly lived in luxury in Pharaoh's house. Think of how strong the appeal of wealth is to many people. There are people who talk about nothing but what other people have. They're never truly grateful for the good gifts God gives because someone else has something they wish they had too. my car my house my job my food my clothes aren't good enough because someone else has a bigger house a nicer car a better paying job better tasting food nicer clothes than I have the fascination with wealth seems to grow on men as they hit maturity you know a lot of rich kids leave the wealth of the family for the life of excitement but by 40 The days of sowing wild oats are generally over. And it's precisely then that Moses relinquishes all prospect of wealth. He was seeking a better, that is, a heavenly country. Choosing the reproach of Christ involved great suffering. Moses knew that he would suffer affliction with the people of God. The Egyptians treated the Israelites like slaves. And Moses knew this and he cast his lot in with them. Think of the emotional turmoil of being ridiculed by all of your former Egyptian buddies who were still living in the lap of luxury while you are humiliated like a slave, and you chose it. He chose to be identified with an oppressed and despised people. In 2 Corinthians 1.5 and Colossians 1.24, Paul calls the suffering of Christians... The sufferings of Christ, because Christ dwells in, strives in, and suffers in his church as his body. Zechariah 2 8 puts it, He who touches you, touches the apple of his eye. Remember what Paul said, or what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus. Why are you persecuting me? Christ took persecution of his church personally. Jesus appeared to Paul and reprimanded him for persecuting him. Now, of course, we know that Paul was persecuting Christians. But Christ takes an assault on his people as an assault on his person. The church is, after all, the body of Christ. Choosing the reproach of Christ entailed accepting this fate. The world always hates the church. Now, they may not understand the driving force behind their hatred... But the warfare is real. The church represents the reign of God and it represents the law of God. And the world is built on the principle of, you will be God's knowing good from evil. And so the people of the world hate everything and anything that reminds them that they are not God. And this is why we see so much hatred against the church. In the early days of the Christian era, the church was numerically insignificant, and their societal influence was negligible. And yet, the whole engine of the Roman Empire was bent on their eradication. No other people on earth have ever provoked such hatred and persecution. For the first 300 years of the Christian era, Rome was a virtual bloodbath, drunken with the blood of the saints. Old Testament or new, God's people have always been at the center of controversy and turmoil. The heathen resent the idea of a people chosen by God. The world hates the church. From the earliest days of the church, this was known not just on paper, but in fact. And the pressure to conform to avoid persecution is strong and it is real. The current lawsuits against the government with regard to forcing religious organizations to provide free birth control and abortions, restrictions on the church's right to gather for worship, societal pressure to accept the sins of abortion and sodomy are all fronts on which this battle is being waged. And the worst part of it is that we will have traitors in our midst. The church has always had men who, in the words of God to Ezekiel, devise iniquity, and give wicked counsel in this city. That leads us to our second point, the communion of the saints. Moses suffered a significant amount of adversity beginning with the day that he tried to use his royal clout to save his people. And the result was that he ended up living the life of a nomad on the backside of the desert for 40 years. Just how much Moses was persecuted by the Egyptians were not told. But the fact that he lived for 40 years under the radar certainly tells us something. But here's what I want to point out. Moses chose to side with the people of God over the world. And I'm here to tell you that those are the only two choices. Now There are a lot of people who lament loudly with a false sense of humility that the church is in bad shape. But you know what? The church is always in bad shape. It's only by the grace of God that anyone is saved. And I don't know why people can't get that through their thick skulls. The state of the church in the days of Moses was atrocious, but Moses did not use that as an excuse to disassociate himself from the church. The last 40 years of Moses' life were largely pure misery as he led a stiff-necked people out of Egypt into the Promised Land. And more importantly, you will never find Moses expressing regret for having sided with the people of God. Even before Moses officially takes up the mantle of leadership, he gets a foretaste of what lies in store for him. When he breaks up the fight between the two Hebrews, what is he met with? Scorn, not gratitude. He had saved a man's life, you know. Did he get any thanks for this? No, he got, who do you think you are? His brethren turned on him. And this is a common theme in the Bible. It's one of the foreshadowing types of Christ. Moses is betrayed by his brothers, the very ones he's attempting to help. Joshua, after leading Israel across the Jordan River to victory at Jericho, we read that the people started talking about stoning him. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, the very men whose lives he will save. Jephthah is betrayed by his brothers. They disown him from the family samson is betrayed by his brothers the men of judah come to arrest him and turn him over to the philistines after he's just won a terrific victory over them david experiences betrayal multiple times jesus is betrayed by one of his own disciples and handed over to rome by the very people to whom he was sent and this is a common theme in the bible in it we see that salvation is only by the grace of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is not one that seeks after God. And our catechism focuses on gratitude so much because this is the great sin, to forget God and his goodness. How much is Christ worth to you? After being turned on and stabbed in the back, Moses could easily have said, you know what, forget it. I'm not doing anything for you jerks again. But he wasn't serving man. He was serving Christ. And he went into it knowing that rough times lie ahead. Now, Back to our point, many times in scripture, we find that the conditions of the visible church are appalling. But never do we find true believers separating themselves from the church on account of her condition. The ultimate example, of course, is Christ. Was any other man holier than he? No, sir. But what saith the scripture? As was his custom, he entered the Sabbath. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. We hear people complain all the time that the church is compromised with the world, that the church is full of hypocrites, or that there's no true representation of the church on earth. I'm going to say what I've said before. This is a schismatic, indeed unregenerate attitude. Surely the man making this assertion is not more holy than Jesus. And yet Jesus could be found worshiping every Lord's Day without regard to the sincerity, orthodoxy, or faithfulness of anyone else in that building. You cannot love Christ and hate his bride. If I heard someone talking about my bride the way many of these men talk about Christ's bride, I think he'd be picking his teeth up off the sidewalk. By being united to Christ... Moses was united to Christ's people. Christ's people, as long as they live on this side of the grave, are always wandering sheep. And the reproach of Christ often entails putting up with wrong priorities, unbelief, worldliness, and a host of other sinful attitudes. You can't be united to Christ and not be united to his body. Only a fool would say otherwise. And the reality of this truth will be more visible in the examples that we will see listed in the rest of this chapter. At least Moses is a relatively good example. Samson, Barak, Gideon, eh, not so much. Let's conclude by considering the importance of Moses to the argument of this chapter. Nobody was more central to the Old Testament than Moses. The whole structure of the church's worship was given through him. In the New Testament, we often find people asking, what did Moses say when what they meant was, what's recorded in law? Moses' status in the Old Testament is is why the Holy Spirit chooses to use him as an example of persevering faith. The original audience of this epistle was strongly tempted to simply just return to the old ways. This would take the heat off. They were being persecuted and mocked, for following christ perhaps a compromise could be reached between following jesus and adhering to the ceremonies of the law i mean it sounds innocent enough doesn't it and the reason it sounds innocent is because we are by nature prone to hate god and our neighbor that's our sinful nature doing what it naturally does twisting the truth to suit its own desires and then imagining that it's obeying god and the very thing wherein it is most disobedient Earlier we considered this, you know, like Moses. Why don't you use this opportunity? But to do so would be to compromise with the world. And whenever compromise occurs between the church and the world, it is always on the world's terms. You know, maybe if we just compromise a little bit with the Judaizers and import a few remnants of the old ways into our Christian faith, we can meet the unbelievers halfway. But Paul says, nope, if you do that, You won't be following Moses' example. The simple and, I guess, unappealing truth is that many of these people did not want to suffer shame for Christ's sake. Few things are as important to us as other people's opinion of us, right? Now, if Moses is your hero, why don't you do what he did? Instead of turning away from the reproach of Christ, he embraced it. He considered the reproach of Christ to be worth more than all the treasures of Egypt. Now, it's easy enough to say, I believe that Christ is more valuable than all the treasures of the world. It's another thing to put your money where your mouth is. Verse 25 tells us how Moses embraced this reproach. He shunned the royal court of Pharaoh and identified with the suffering of his people who themselves were disgraced by suffering slavery in Egypt. By leaving his position of prestige for scorn, he foreshadowed Christ, who left the privileges and glories of heaven in order to identify with his people who were enslaved to sin. Moses was initially rejected by the people that he was trying to save, just like Jesus, who was rejected by his people. But not only did Moses side with Israel against Egypt, he even took upon himself the task of interceding for Egypt, or for Israel. Moses chose 40 years of thankless toil. First, he mediated for Israel to Pharaoh, and then he mediated to Israel for God, to God. And the whole time, all he got was complaints ingratitude, and, and heartache. But Moses had counted the cost. He could do it because he was looking forward to... his reward and his reward was not entering canaan he was looking for the eternal reward that enabled him to endure temporary disgrace true saving faith proudly bears the temporary disgrace and rejection that comes with following jesus have you embraced the reproach of christ do you consider the shame that might come from following him in the eyes of the world to be greater than all the world has to offer third and final point is that Christ that Moses chose Christ over life I want you to notice something in verse 27 we read that Moses forsook Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king now Moses left Egypt twice first after he killed the Egyptian and secondly when he led Israel into Canaan now the first time that he left we read that he left from fear because Pharaoh found out that he had defended an Egypt, uh, Hebrew by killing an Egyptian. So this isn't the departure our text is referring to, but rather the second departure. And so the question arises, what accounts for the difference in Moses' character? On that first occasion, when he realizes that Pharaoh is angry with him, he disappears for 40 long years. On the second occasion, he has run in. After running, after running with Pharaoh, and yet he persists. I mean, if there's one word that describes Moses' demeanor, it is fearless. Question What produced the change? This change was produced by the clear commission of God. The first time Moses acted in the interest of his people, he was merely assuming that he was called by God to save them. The second time, he had a clear call from God you know a lot of wannabe ministers fail miserably at this point because they feel a sense of urgency and they thrust themselves into a ministry long before God has fully prepared them and disaster is the outcome and this is another aspect I guess of the reproach of Christ sometimes you have to stand in the wings for a long time and look like an idiot to family and friends who don't sense your call to the ministry you have to make do with what you can and bear the shame of repeated rejection and disappointment, while people who by all rights should be your biggest supporters say, you know what, you know, maybe you're not called after all. I mean, if you were, surely God would have opened a door for you by now. So Moses traipsed along like an idiot in the desert for 40 years, thinking, I don't get it. But he was able to persevere because his eye was on the reward. Like Abraham isaac and jacob before him he was willing to have the recognition postponed until the resurrection state as i asked a minute ago have you embraced the reproach of christ do you consider that the shame that might come from following him in the eyes of the world to be greater than all that the world has to offer would you rather suffer hardship with god's people than to enjoy comfort without them let us pray